Well, good morning, and it's great to have everybody here this morning. Thank you for joining me on the final uh, passages in Matthew. If you've been with us for this period, we've gone through uh, the book of Matthew, and we're at its final chapters. And today we're going to start in Matthew 27, uh, and we're going to start in, actually, I'm going to move to verse 55, although I've only been assigned verse 57, and there's a reason for that. If you were here last week, you would have heard our brother Keith talk about um, the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. And he started his message last week with some women that were sitting, uh, were there attending Calvary, and it started with verse 55. So Matthew chapter 27, verse 55 says, And many women who had come from Galilee with Jesus to care had, sorry and many women who had come from Galilee with Jesus to care for him were watching him from a distance among them were Mary Magdalene Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of James and John the sons of Zebedee So I would like us to I basically invite you back to that scene. And Keith suggested that we stand beside these women and take the picture of where we were, where they were, and what they were doing. Sometimes I must admit, when I read these passages, I'm so familiar with them, I skim over some of the aspects of it. And we are very focused, as rightfully we should be, about the Lord Jesus who is on the cross at this particular point in time. But sometimes we miss the scene, we miss the reality of some of these things that are happening on the ground. And that's so important to some of these aspects, and I'm hoping to draw some of them out, not to dismiss or not to take away from what the Lord Jesus Christ has done, but to bring it into a reality of, of what he's done for us and what he's done for some of the people at the cross. The passage that we have today goes from the lowest lows. And what I mean by that is there are some people here that are hurting. They really are. The man, the Messiah that they thought was their king and that they followed, where was he? He was dead on the cross. He was dead on the cross. And their hopes, you can sense, and you wouldn't, no one would blame them if, if you said, well, their hope, they, were, they feel this hopelessness, this lostness, this confusion. What, what's happening? You know, I think of a verse, as Keith was speaking last week, I was thinking of that verse in Lamentations, and it says in Lamentations 1 and 12, it is nothing to you, all, who, all you who pass by, behold and see if there's any sorrow like my sorrow, which has been brought on me, which, is the, Lord, which the Lord has inflicted in the day of his fierce anger. So we're going to go through a lot of passages today. We're going to go through the lowest of lows, but I hope to bring you to the highest of highs as well and kind of enter and walk through that journey with me. But in, let's just start with a word of prayer. Our blessed, blessed loving God and Father, we're going to open your word. We want you to speak to us today. We want you to open our hearts. We want you to open our minds because you have a message, Father, for us. Thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he died on the cross. Thank you that we can start our passage at this cross but, Father, we thank you that the story doesn't end there. The story is so much better. It's so much more powerful. And, Father, I just ask you for your help, that as I present your word, that I would communicate clearly, that, Father, that you would make receptive hearts and minds, and, Father, that your Holy Spirit would be active this morning. And I just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So where does our passage start? Our passage today starts where, in my mind, all is quiet. Maybe there's some noise in the background. But the abusive words and the mockery, they've all stopped. What's happened, and just to take a quick inventory, what's happened is the earth has quaked. The rocks have split. The Lord has shouted with a voice that should, no one should have had on the cross. And he gave up his spirit. He gave up his spirit willingly. Jesus was dead. Prior to this, of course, the, the priests and the elders were pacing, and they were a bit con concerned about the timing of all this, because the Sabbath was coming, and we, they knew that the, these, these men, these criminals, could not stay on the cross. And so they, they looked and they said, well, here's an idea. Let's, and it, I assume it was custom. Let's break the legs of these individuals so they can no longer hold themselves up, so they can no longer gasp for air. And so that was, was, done. That was what was done to the two criminals that were crucified with the Lord Jesus, if you know the story. But when they came to Jesus, of course, he was dead already. He was dead already. But we know that if you know the story, one of the soldiers that was there that confirmed the Lord Jesus' death decided to pierce him with a spear. And out from his side flowed blood and water. And we heard this morning, if you were at the Breaking of Bread's service, you heard this morning about how the life is in the blood. And so the Lord Jesus' blood spilt on the ground. So now what? We're there at the cross. Now what? We look around, and who's left? Well, I would suggest to you that the action's done. What people came for, it was over. There was no confusion. These men were dead. And so I assume the crowd was dissipating. You know, we are told in John's Gospel that John assigned the care of his mother to the, his disciple John. And so I can picture in my mind John escorting Mary away from the scene. Why? Well, to save her from seeing anything more as it related to the Lord Jesus. And the event was over. I'll get back to that. Now, some of the priests and Pharisees, if we look around again, the scene of Calvary, some of the priests and Pharisees would have been there because although they're probably, they've confirmed God, the Lord Jesus' death, we'll see later that they were somewhat concerned with what was happening to the body. And then, of course, there was Mary Magdalene and the other Mary and the mother of James and John, the son of Zebedee. But Jesus is dead. No one would blame them, the people that were there, the Marys, no one would blame them for feeling lost, for feeling hopeless, because their Messiah was dead. So then we look around and we see the Lord Jesus on the cross. He's dead. Well, what's the next logical, logical view is, well, what are we going to do with the body? How are we going to deal with the Lord's body? You know, I would, I would suggest to you that there was no time to make a collection to deal with the, the expenses of a funeral. There was no time because if you, uh, again, knowing the, the, the timeline for the scriptures, the Lord Jesus died shortly after 3 o'clock, around 3 o'clock. And, and the sunset, I just looked at the sunset for Jerusalem, for example. For today, it will set at 740. So there was a window of opportunity before the sunset and before uh, 
before, uh, after Jesus' death by which to deal with it. But again, a sense of hopelessness if you were standing there with these women, a sense of hopelessness of what do we do now? Quite honestly, I don't think anybody was prepared for a funeral that day. I don't think they were prepared for the death of the Lord Jesus. And then when you think about it, well, the whole crucifixion took place under the authority of the Romans, so it's reasonable to conclude that the authority of the release of the body of Jesus was under that of Pilate. And none of the women had the authority or the ability to go and ask for an audience of Pilate. None of Jesus' followers had that. So again, a sense of ho ho hopelessness. Then, you know, the thought goes, well, what was Jesus' nationality? Well, he was a Jew. And he was, and he always, when you read the accounts of, of the Lord Jesus, he always respected Jewish law. He was a perfect man. He was always in compliance with Jewish law. But under Jewish law, we read, if someone has committed a crime, and I just, just as a quick note, I'm using the New Living Translation, so most of the verses I'll throw up on, on the overhead. Um, but it, to the extent that there's, you just want to listen, that's fine, or look at the screen. If someone has committed a crime worthy of death and is executed and hung on a tree, the body must not remain hanging from the tree overnight. You must bury the body that same day, for anyone who is hung is cursed in the sight of God. In this way, you will prevent the defilement of the land, and the Lord your God is giving you, the Lord your God is giving you as a special possession. So that's that's what the uh, uh, the leading religious the religious leaders would be following in this particular case, as well as the fact that the Sabbath was approaching. So our passage now starts with the introduction of Joseph, a respected Jewish elder from Arimathea. So this is Matthew twenty-seven, and starting at verse fifty-seven. As the evening approached, Joseph, a rich man from Arimathea, who had become a follower of Jesus, went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. And Pilate issued the orders to release it to him. Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a long sheet of clean linen cloth. He placed it in his own new tomb, which had been carved out of the rock. Then he rolled a great stone across the entrance and left. Both Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting across the tomb and watching. Now, Joseph is a very interesting man. And he's interesting in the fact that he's mentioned in all four Gospels. So it's not insignificant. And all four Gospels give us a flavor or give us some insight into the character of Joseph. We go to Mark. Well, in our current passage, we see that, that Joseph... Um, Sorry, let me catch up. Um, a rich, it was a rich man who had become a follower of Jesus. That's in Matthew. And then in Mark, we read he was a respected member of the council, which was the Sanhedrin. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. And that he took courage and went and saw Pilate. In Luke, we see he was good and righteous, who had not consented to the decisions and actions of the others. And in John... We actually read that he was a disciple of Jesus, although it was secret for, because he feared the Jews. So then one would ask, well, why would Joseph ask for Jesus' body? When we think of Jesus at this point, he's dead. 
And if you would look from an earthly perspective, he was wealthy, he was well-respected, he was, he was uh, a man of stature. He had everything to lose and nothing to gain by asking Pilate for the body of Jesus. So why did he do it? Well, we don't know. But can I just suggest a few things? God used him because he could. He was a respected leader of the Jewish people, and he had access to Pilate like nobody else had. He may have never used it before, but him going to Pilate's gate gave him access. You know, I was thinking too, not only could he do it, but it was the right thing to do. We know that the Bible tells us that Joseph was a good and he was a righteous man. He knew Jesus was an innocent man, and we knew he didn't consent to all these things. So my view was, as a good and righteous man, it was the right thing to do. And then third, he believed Jesus. And Jesus can change hearts and lives, and he changed the heart and life of, jo of Joseph. You know, many of the other leaders listened to Jesus. They heard the same words that Joseph did, but they had their own agendas, and they had their own self-interest that they were protecting. And Joseph, of course, he listened with an open heart. He listened with an open mind, and he heard the same passages. What was the difference? Well, I, I, I suggest to you that the difference was he was looking for the kingdom of God. He was looking for the kingdom of God, and he found it in Jesus, and his response was naturally what he did. So his first step was to go and ask Pilate. And the Bible tells us he took courage. He took courage. Because why? Well, we heard that Joseph was secretly a follower of Jesus, but now he was going public. He was publicly announcing that, in fact, he was a disciple of Jesus. There was no turning back in Joseph's life. Joseph's life. You know, it makes me think of the times that, well, God can do incredible things with a willing mind and a willing heart in order to serve him, one that loves him and seeks, the, to glory, seeks his glory and the honor of his kingdom. You know, and if you are a believer here today, the Bible would tell us that the Holy Spirit indwells us. And that Holy Spirit convicts and encourages us into action and obedience. Joseph was willing to suffer whatever might come to be obedient and do the right thing. I wonder if you ever had a ping in your heart as a believer with the Holy Spirit, where maybe it was a simple thing, like walking by someone struggling, an old, an old person struggling with groceries in their car, and you're in a hurry, you walk by, and then you walk by and something pings you and says, I should have stopped and I should have helped. That's just a simple example. There are much greater ones. This, of course, Joseph is much greater. My point is this. The Holy Spirit speaks to us. And like Joseph, he did the right thing. He responded to what God's calling was. Now, what's also important as we cast, as, as we review these passages, is the time of day. And it's very important because time was of the essence. We saw that in, in Deuteronomy 22. But we also knew, and Deuteronomy 22 said, the body must be buried that same day. And like I said, based on, on scripture, it was past 3 o'clock, and sunset was probably around 7. And so whatever your timeline is in that stuff, it's it, it, in that period, I'll leave it to you. We are told. Just going to 
In any case, I picture that Joseph is purposeful in his path, and he has a respectful urgency in the task and what he's doing. Now, we don't read about Joseph other than he's wealthy. We don't read about anybody coming to help Joseph as it relates to servants or any of his staff, which I assume he had. But we do read in John 19, verse 39, that there was a man named Nicodemus who had previously come to Jesus as night. And maybe people here are familiar with that story. He didn't, want to, he didn't come to Jesus by day. He came to Jesus by night. But here, at the, at, as Jesus is dead, he comes and helps Joseph. Uh, and in fact, he was carrying a mixture of myrrh and alloys for, for um, spices for the burial of Jesus's body. I can imagine that they had to work fast. Now, again, we've seen different ideas of what the cross looked like. The fact that it was carried, I would suggest that the Lord Jesus was nailed to the cross as it laid down, and, and he, the cross was lifted and placed in a sheath in the ground. So you can imagine, in the reverse order, what it would take to take Jesus off the cross. Well, it would take more than one man to lift a cross out of a sheath out of the ground with the Lord Jesus on it, I assume. And so there was, that was what was done. And then the cross, if Joseph had anything to do with it, I'm sure the cross was laid gently down onto the ground. Now, I don't know about you, and I didn't give it a tremendous amount of thought, but I've pulled nails out of many pieces of old wood, and I can't imagine how these nails were removed from the Lord Jesus with respect and honor to his body. In John chapter 19, verses 38 and 42, we have another account of this, this, this time. And it said they took, and this is referring to Joseph, of course, they took the body of Jesus and wrapped it with spices in linen cloths according to the burial customs of the Jews. Now there was a garden in the place where he was crucified, and in the garden there was a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. And so because it was the Jewish day of preparation, the tomb was nearby, and, and the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. The day was ending, so there was an urgency to get this done. I pictured the cloth being laid down by the cross, actually, where Jesus' body would have been wrapped, only for respect and honor, and probably re-wrapped in the tomb. But in any case, however you picture this scene, the Lord Jesus is dead. Then we go to the tomb. We don't have much of a picture of a processional, do we, of, this, of the, what moves from the from the Calvary to the tomb. We know it was nearby, but it was nothing like a royal, a royal funeral or that of a king. If you saw the queen's funeral that happened a little while ago, in the Lord Jesus's, there was no crowds lying in the streets. There was no honoring eulogies. There were no kind words. And there were no days of preparation. And there were no days of mourning. But God used Joseph in a very special way. Joseph was the instrument that was used to honor and respect the body of Jesus. And it also fulfilled a prophecy. In Isaiah 53, 9, we read, as it prophesied the Lord Jesus' suffering and death, he had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal 
he was put in a rich man's grave. So what do we know about the tomb? And I'll just go quickly through the tomb issues. Well, we know it was the tomb of a wealthy man, Joseph, fulfilling the prophecy that I just read. It was close, as we read in John, it was in the garden, and the garden, the, the garden was close to Calvary, and, and the tomb was in the garden. It was new, and no one had ever been laid in it before. And it's going to be relevant because at some point in time, it's going to be important that there was no other body in there but Jesus. And it was hewn out of rock, hewn out of rock and I would suggest to you it was hewn out of rock, referencing only one door. There was only one way in and one way out. In our passage, we read, he placed it, meaning Joseph placed the body of Jesus in his own new tomb, which had been carved out of rock. Then he rolled a great stone across the entrance and left. Both Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting across from the tomb and watching. When I read that, my heart breaks because they're looking at a tomb whereby the rock has been, has been has, where the tomb has been sealed by a rock, Joseph walks away, and Mary and Mary are sitting there looking at a tomb of their dead Messiah. As this scene closes, I was overwhelmed somewhat with a sense of sorrow and loss and grief as it related to these, these people, especially these women, because the last 24 hours was incredible for, these, for all his followers. But it, what, what was surprising to me when I think back that despite Jesus warning them multiple times that he was going to be killed and that he was going to be raised from the dead, nobody was expecting it, it seems. Nobody was expecting a funeral. No one would blame them for a sense of hopelessness, darkness, confusion, maybe doubt, maybe uncertainty, hopeless, confusion, doubt, uncertainty. You know what? We've all been there. We've all been there. Whether you know the Lord Jesus as your personal Savior today or whether you do, there's been times, and I know I've had times, of spiritual darkness where it's been tough, where I've had hopelessness, and I've had confusion, and I've had uncertainty. So I can relate to these women who are sitting at the tomb and, and looking at, the, at what they think is a hopeless situation. And then I, 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 you cast back and you say, well, there are some responses you can have to these things. And like everything, the, Lord, the, the, the Word of God gives us some examples of how we respond when we're in those situations. We can run. You know, I, I look back at the passages and I see that there's no disciples. You know, we, we see the last word of Peter, we see John, you know, at, at the cross, but everyone else is, is kind of gone. In fact, the Lord Jesus in Matthew 26, verse 31, he says to his disciples on the way, Jesus told them, tonight all of you will desert me, for the scripture says, God will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So one of the approaches is, we can run, and, and, and I've run, and I assume that's some of the, one of the easier things to do is, is run, to avoid. Then I was thinking, well, as another example, there was a stay the course. 
stay the course. What does that mean? I'm thankful for the faithfulness of the Marys. You know, they were there at the cross, and they, they stayed there. They were there at, at the Lord's burial. They stayed there. And now we'll read that they also ran and were there the first light of day when they could be. You know, someone once gave me some very good advice. They said, don't reverse a decision in the dark that you made in the light. Meaning, if I decided to do something when I was in a good state of mind, in a good spiritual health, that I shouldn't reverse that decision if, in fact, I was not in a good state of mind and I was not in a, 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 and I was in a bad, um, not in a good spiritual mind and in a bad way. I look at Mary and Mary, and I see the fact that they stayed the course. They stayed the course. What was their course? To stay close to Jesus. And then the third item, so we, you know, we can run, we can stay the course. And then I looked at Joseph and I saw something else. I saw, well, you can do what you can. You can do what you can. You don't do what you can't. What do I mean? Well, Joseph and Nicodemus could not stop the death of the Lord Jesus. They couldn't change the outcome. Jesus was dead. They could, however, do the right thing and show honor and respect to Jesus through securing his body and preparing it for burial in the tomb in compliance with all the Jewish laws and customs. Doing whatever they can obviously came at a huge cost to Joseph and Nicodemus. They may have lost their reputation, their credentials, their status and their respect. However, one thing to note, their names are honored in the, in the, the, in the Bible. They stand in eternity for what they've done for the Lord Jesus. But the Lord Jesus was dead. So Matthew 27 and 62. The next day on the Sabbath, the leading priests and Pharisees went to see Pilate. They told him, Sir, we remember what that deceiver once said while he was still alive. After three days, I will rise from the dead. So we request that you seal the tomb until the third day. This will prevent his disciples from coming and stealing his body and then telling everyone he was raised from the dead. If that happens, we'll be worse off than we were at first. Pilate replied, Take guards and secure it the best you can. So they sealed the tomb and posted it. There can be a lot said for this passage, these few words, but time will limit me. But one of the things that I, I, I noted was, I think Joseph and the actions of Joseph and Nicodemus, to use a baseball term, threw a curveball at the religious leaders. I didn't think, I don't think that the religious leaders expected someone to claim the body of Jesus. I don't think they expected that Jesus would have his own tomb. Because you can imagine, in that particular case, if in most instances, if you were a criminal, you were disposed of in a mass grave. Uh, you know, it, it, there was no accountability. There was a lack of, de of uh, an ability to confirm your presence and you're there. Whereas in a, single, in a single tomb, there would be an accountability to be able to tell whether you're there or not. There would be a place that someone could point their finger at and say, that's where he should have been. And that was new. That was new. So they acted fast. You know, we read this morning, I believe it was in John, that the, uh, 
religious leaders of the day wanted Jesus dead because he broke the Sabbath. And we read in our passage that on the Sabbath, the next morning, this is when they, the, uh, the religious leaders went and saw Pilate and asked for permission to place a guard. Well, clearly, they broke the Sabbath. That's not something they should have done. The fear that they had was that their apparent victory in Jesus' death could only be sustained if he stayed dead. It would be totally reversed. It would be a total different case if Jesus was alive. Paul gives us insight on the meaning of a dead Jesus if there was no resurrection. Paul, of course, had been a Jewish leader, well-trained. He knew what he was, you know, he knew the aspects of, of what it was. And he says this, he says, and if Christ has not been raised, if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. And we apostles would all be lying about God, for we have said that God raised Christ from the grave, but that can't be true if there's no resurrection of the dead. And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sin. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if your hope, and if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. The Jewish leaders understood that a resurrected Jesus would mean that death was conquered, that Jesus' claim to be God was true, and that the authority to forgive sin would be real. So they posted the guards. In Matthew 28, we start in verse 1, and I'll read the whole passage. Early on Sunday morning, as the new day was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went out to visit the tomb. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, rolled aside the stone, and sat on it. His face shone like lightning, and his clothing was as white as snow. The guards shook with fear when they saw him, and they fell into, into a dead faint. Then the, gospel, then the angel spoke to the women, Don't be afraid, he said. I know you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead, just as he said he would happen. Come, see where his body was lying. And now, go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Remember what I have told you. The women ran quickly from the tomb. They were frightened, but also filled with great joy, and they rushed to give the disciples the angel's message. And as they went, Jesus met them and greeted them, and they ran to him and grasped his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Don't be afraid. Go, tell my brothers to leave for Galilee, and they will see me there. Jesus is not dead. He's alive. Jesus is not dead. He's alive. The news that would be sweet to the ears of the Marys was toxic to the, new, to the ears of the religious leaders of the day. He is not here. He is risen from the dead, just as he said he would. I can go through a, a, a whole message on the importance of the resurrection. And just to touch on a few things, the Lord Jesus' resurrection, as depicted here, 
fulfilled scripture. What does that mean, it fulfilled scripture? Well, the scriptures, the holy word of God is true. And what Jesus taught was true. And in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 4, he was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. And this isn't insignificant. In Matthew alone, there are six references where the Lord Jesus said, I'm going to die and I'm going to be raised again from the dead. If Jesus doesn't rise, he lied. And if he lied about that, it brings into question everything he said. Jesus did what he said he would do. It fulfilled the scripture from the beginning to the end. There are a number of different things it provides for our salvation. In 1 Corinthians 15, 7, it says, And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless, and you are still guilty of your sin. It's a guarantee of our resurrection. In 1 Corinthians, again, I encourage you on the topic of resurrection. It's a wonderful topic. It's a wonderful chapter. It says, but there is an order to this resurrection. And this is 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23. But there is an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest. Then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. And it also confirms that death has been defeated. In 1 Corinthians 15, again, we read, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. But thank God, he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus. Now, I also reflect, when we look at this and we see how prominent the two Marys are in this passage, I was encouraged to see how the Lord Jesus blessed the Marys and their faithfulness. There were many firsts that these women experienced. They were the first to hear the words, he, is, he isn't here, he is risen from the dead. They were the first to see an empty tomb. They were the first to carry the resurrection news as the angel directed for them to speak to the disciples. And they were the first to meet and to worship and to touch the Lord Jesus and his risen self. You know, we aren't told why Jesus chose them, but I can suggest something. They were there. They were there. They had ready hearts and minds and bodies and were in a position for Jesus to bless them and use them. God's blessing generally comes with us showing up and serving you know, maybe you've gone through a spiritual dullness. Maybe you've gone through a period where you don't know. There's, there's little life in your spiritual life. I've been there. I've been there. And when I reflect back, sometimes in the last seven days, when I reflect back in my dryness in my life, I could look back and say, well, it was seven days ago that I thought about God because that was seven days ago since I sat in a pew. Maybe that's you. Maybe your daily routine suffers. Maybe the fact is you don't open the word of God. You don't have any personal devotion. You don't have any prayer time. Well, I would suggest to you, in my time, I wasn't showing up. I wasn't providing God an opportunity to bless me like he blessed the Marys.
Now, given the time, I will just, I'll read the, the chapter and then we'll, uh, with a, just a short uh, discussion on one other point. As the women, so starting in verse 11, chapter 28, as the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and told the leading priests what had happened. A meeting with the elders was called, and they decided to give the soldiers a large bribe. They told the soldiers, you must say, Jesus' disciples came during the night while they were, we were sleeping, and they stole his body. If the governor hears about it, we'll stand up for you so you won't get in trouble. So the guards accepted the bribe and said, what they were and said what they were told their story spread widely among the jews and they still tell it today now there are a number of reasons why this story is not even plausible but i won't go i won't go into that and i'm happy to talk to anybody afterwards but i'll tell you this the roman soldiers were known to be mean tough merciless and the fact and one of the number one commands was to accomplish the mission and we also read in Acts 12, 19, when Peter escaped prison, the guards that were on duty that day, you know what happened to them? And you can read it in Acts chapter 12, verse 19. Herod interrogated them, and he sentenced them to death. There was no leniency for failure for a Roman soldier. So the fact that a dead man escaped Roman care, I suggest to you, didn't go without severe consequences. And so the bribe would have to have been significant. The bribe would have had to have been significant. You know, and then we're going we're gonna to come up with lies throughout our, 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 uh, our life. We, one of the key issues with the Christians, and with anybody, is decipher truth from a lie. And in John chapter 8, I'll just read this quickly, it says, and the Lord Jesus was speaking, and he was speaking about some of the Jewish leaders. He said, for you are, for you are the children of your father, the devil, and you love to do the evil things he does. He was a murderer from the beginning. He has always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, it is consistent with his character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So that was relevant, that was pertinent, and that was evident here in the guards and in how the um, religious leaders dealt with it. Finally, just in closing, I want to just say, the last, read the last um, uh, verses, and it's called the Great Commission. Then the eleven disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some of them doubted. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you, and be sure of this, I am with you even to the end of the ages. The Lord Jesus was speaking to his disciples. Where had his disciples been? Had they been a significant letdown? Had they shown their fear? Had they shown their, in effect, I'll suggest to you, disobedience by their absence uh, as they ran, as things got tough? You know what? I can relate to them. I can relate to a lack of courage, a fear as it relates to the Lord's things, an inability to accomplish these things. But where my heart goes is in these words where Jesus told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and earth. And if you have a King James Bible, they use the word power. 
authority and power. The disciples went out and they changed the world. Did they change the world because of who they were? No, they didn't. They changed the world because they carried the authority and power of the Lord Jesus, not in themselves, but through them, in order to impact the world. You know, Paul expressed this too in 2 Corinthians 12. Paul learned that lesson. He did some miraculous and, and astounding things for the Lord in spreading the, the gospel. And he himself said, my, the Lord, God said to him, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I am glad to boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ can work through me. I started this meeting talking about the lows of the lows and suggesting we would get to the high of the highs. We are. We serve a living Savior. Jesus is alive today. Is he alive in you? We have an opportunity to serve a wonderful God, a God that died, uh, that sent his son, the Lord Jesus, who died a miserable, torturous death, who was buried, as we discussed today, and who rose again and is alive forevermore. I'll leave you with a couple of verses. Just in closing, I'll leave you with one verse in closing. And it's Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. And it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by a, such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin so e that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. It's because of the joy awaiting him he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Think of all the hostilities he's endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. The Lord Jesus wants a relationship with each one of us. He wants his life to be extended to ours. He wants us to change our lives by which we can then change others. Not because we are anything, but because he can use his power through us. I pray that these words may be a blessing. Maybe we just close in prayer. Our blessed, loving God and Father, we thank you again for an opportunity to open your word. We thank you so much that it is truth. We thank you so much for your Holy Spirit that can guide and direct us through it. We thank you so much for the Lord Jesus who died to save us. We thank you that he is not dead in that grave. We thank you that he is alive. And we thank you, Father, that he can be alive in each one of us here. Thank you that you are willing to forgive sin. Thank you that you are eager to forgive sin. Father, I thank you again for your grace and your goodness that's, that we can see through Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.